everyone, I'm Jasmine. I'm a first year psychology student and I'll be reading uh, 1 Corinthians 9 for us today. You can follow along in your handout. Okay. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I might not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? who tends a flock and does not drink the milk. Do I say this merely on human authority? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us, because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, Is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple, and that those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. But I have not used any of these rights, and I am not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me, for I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge, and so not make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews, To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. This semester in our equip training, I've been doing an elective with a group of about 20 CUers thinking about ethics. 
uh, how to think about the good. What is good? How do we live it out? Uh, And we've been thinking a little bit about how do people encounter ethics? Do you come across it mainly in rules and laws? Or do you think more about consequences? Perhaps you think more in terms of character. It's less about actions, more about character uh, and values. But I reckon one of the major ways that we and our society think about ethics is that we think about rights. Uh, It's the dominant sort of language of our national discussions. I have the right not to feel offended. I have the right to free speech. I have the right to marry whoever I want. I have the right to religious freedom. And as it turns out, uh, next year it'll be 70 years since the United Nations drafted the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Uh, And if you go and read it, it's actually a really good document. Uh, It's extraordinary that a committee could come up with something so good. It doesn't really acknowledge the Bible, but it does fit with it very well. Uh, And I think it fits well with the dignity of human beings. But people have been talking about their rights for much longer than the last 70 years. In fact, in the passage that we read today, we discover that 2,000 years ago in ancient Corinth, people were talking about their rights as well. So today we're going to go and see something of what the Bible has to say about rights. Do they exist? Are they a helpful way for thinking about how to live in God's world? And will they help us to do good? In Acts chapter 18, we discover that Paul himself actually planted the church in Corinth. He'd spent a year and a half there, which was quite a bit longer than he usually spent uh, planting churches. And when he first arrived, he met a Jewish couple who'd come from Rome, Priscilla and Aquila. And turned out that they were tent makers, and so was he. So they set up shop together, making tents. They'd work during the week so that they'd have money to support themselves. And then on the Sabbath, Paul would head on down to the local synagogue and he'd try to persuade the Corinthian Jews and Gentiles about Jesus. Uh, Not too long after they'd been there, uh, Silas and Timothy, a couple of Paul's co-workers, arrived with money from some Macedonian churches. And so Paul was able to quit making tents and spend his full time uh, preaching the gospel. And a number of Corinthians, both Jews and Gentiles, believed and were baptised. That's the origin of the church in Corinth. But after Paul left Corinth, after that initial 18 months, other people came in. And in 2 Corinthians, he refers to them sarcastically as the super apostles. And these guys have been saying how much better they are than Paul. I mean, look at that guy, Paul. He gets all nervous about eating in idol temples. It's like he doesn't even realise that idols are not real. They're not anything. I bet he just sits at home eating vegetables. Not like a real man. Not like us, who eat meat. That's what real men do. But then Paul's not really a real man, is he? probably explains why he doesn't have a wife. Real apostles have wives, and not just any wives. Us super apostles, we have smoking hot wives. 
And we take them with us. In fact, they want to come with us because, after all, why wouldn't you? We're super hot ourselves. And here's another thing. People actually think that our preaching is worth paying for. We set up shop and they come and pay us money to hear us talk. But have you ever seen anyone pay Paul for his sermons? No way. Why would you? They're rubbish. They're not nearly as good as us. But basically, these super apostles are kind of like the youth minister you hope you never get. Uh, But too many churches do. They're good looking. They're personally charismatic. Totally convinced that they're God's gift. But some of the Corinthians are starting to believe them. I mean, if Paul really is an apostle, then how come he's so lame? You know, compared to these guys, he's just not very impressive. And why doesn't he stand up for his rights? Why doesn't he insist on the right to be able to eat food in an idol temple? And so starting with verse 1, Paul actually does defend his rights. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? And that's actually what defines an apostle, someone who's met the resurrected Jesus and been commissioned by him to take the gospel. That's true of the uh, 11 apostles, the original disciples. And it's true of Paul, who met the resurrected Jesus on the way to Damascus. He was commissioned by Jesus to present the gospel to the Gentiles. So actually, unlike these new guys who have come in, Paul is not a pseudo-apostle. He's the real deal. And in case they need more evidence, here it is. Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. When I graduated from uni, I got my science degree. UWA gave me a nice little piece of paper and they had a seal on it. It's a red wax seal from the University of Western Australia. Why? Well, to prove that I haven't just printed this certificate off for myself and claimed to have a science degree from UWA. No, the the wax seal is the sign that it's the real deal. So how can the Corinthians know that Paul is an apostle? Well, they've just got to look at the seal, and that's themselves. He came and preached the gospel to them. They believed, and in doing so, they entered into a relationship with God himself. Do they need any proof that Paul is the real deal? Well, they are the proof. The very fact that they exist and trust Jesus is proof. Paul really is an apostle, and so he has all the rights of an apostle. Verse 4, don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as did the other apostles and the Lord's brother, brothers and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living? See, Paul sowed the seed of the gospel. He planted the church in Corinth. He shepherded them through their first 18 months of faith in Jesus. And he worked really hard. He worked really hard, and so he has the right to be paid for his labour. Verse 7, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? 
Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? This is just the way the world works. If you do work, you deserve to be paid for it. The Old Testament law says the same thing in verse 9. For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Well, actually, at one level, yes. God is concerned about oxen. That's why if you've got your ox walking round and round, treading on the grain, crushing it so that the husk breaks away from the kernel, then you're not allowed to muzzle it. You can't prevent it from feeding. It's got to be allowed to eat some of the grain that it's treading out because if the ox does the work, it deserves to be paid. And Paul says it's the same with people. Paul's worked really hard for the Corinthians, preaching the gospel, spending long nights trying to persuade them of the truth about Jesus, then teaching them and helping them to flourish as believers. And so he should benefit from the work that he's done. He totally has the right to that. Verse 11, if we've sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? Others have this right of support from you. Shouldn't we have it all the more? I mean, Paul is the one who God has used to bring them into being. Ministers of the gospel have rights. And that means that we who benefit from them have obligations. If you benefit from the ministry of your pastor, then you ought to pay them. If they've sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if they reap a material harvest from you? And besides, if you stop and think about it, who's getting the better deal? You just give them money, which you've got to leave at some point anyway. You can't take it with you when you die. But you get to exchange it for something that's of eternal spiritual benefit. So Paul is clear that people do have rights. In fact, so do oxen. Oxen don't have human rights, obviously, but they do have oxen rights. Oxen have a right to flourish as oxen. But the bigger picture is that it's about people. People have a right to flourish as people. If you use someone for their labour and then don't pay them, then that's not treating them as truly human. In fact, it's not even treating them like oxen. It denies them their rights and it's wrong. But here's the thing. Paul is crystal clear that he has these rights. The right to be paid for his labour. But look at the second half of verse 12. But we did not use this right. Does that seem strange to you? Because we live in a culture where people are obsessed about their rights. People frankly make up rights. The right to broadband internet. The right to not be offended. We make up all sorts of rights all the time because that is kind of the bargaining chip. If I can claim a right to something, then you have an obligation to me. And people get outraged if anyone disagrees with their rights, whether they're real or not. But the interesting thing is that although Paul insists he really does have these rights, that 
They're just part of creation. They're how God has made things to work. He doesn't insist on them. In fact, he doesn't use them. Why? Are the super apostles right, after all, that he is just a doormat? He just gets trampled over by anyone. Well, no. See, have a look at verse 12 there with me. We put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. It's not that Paul doesn't have the right to be paid for preaching the gospel. He does. But verse 13, don't you know that... Oh, sorry, he does. Verse 13, don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple and that those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. He absolutely has the right to be paid, but he chooses not to exercise it. Why? Well, because insisting on his right to be paid might hinder the gospel. And you can see the truth of that, can't you? I mean, if you start charging for people to hear the gospel, you automatically exclude anyone who can't pay for it. But more than that, you also create this little niggling doubt in people's minds that perhaps that's the reason you're doing it. You just want the money. In the Roman Empire, they didn't have television, they didn't have Netflix to just go and entertain themselves, but they did have lots of travelling speakers, people who would go around from town to town and they'd hire out a lecture hall, set up shop, and then they'd charge entry for people to come and hear them speak to be entertained. It wasn't really about the truth. It was just about entertainment. It was about making money. But Paul doesn't want anyone in Corinth to think that's why he's doing it. No, he doesn't want anyone to doubt the gospel. So, verse 15, I've not used any of these rights. But then you might think, ah, ha, ha. Aha, uh-huh. I see what he's doing here. This is, this is actually a brilliant piece of rhetoric. That Paul is denying that he's ever used these rights. He's pointing out that he's never used them so that the Corinthians will feel so guilty that now they'll actually start giving him money. Now, it's a little bit like, you know, your mum says to you, Oh, darling, you don't need to buy me a present for my birthday. After all, you didn't get me anything last year. <laughs> Is that what Paul's doing? No, he insists, no, that is not what I'm doing. I'm not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me, for I'd rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. Boasting sounds bad, but what Paul means is, how can he do this? How can he preach the gospel in a way that he can rightly feel proud of? How can he say to himself, I did a good thing there? Well, he says he can't actually do it by preaching the gospel. Because he's got no choice about that. Jesus has commanded him to preach the gospel. Woe to me if I don't preach it, Paul says. He's under orders. So, how can he preach the gospel in a way that he can actually feel like he's done a good thing. Well, the only thing he can do to be proud of is by giving up his right to be paid for it. He can preach the gospel for free. 
Jesus didn't command him to do that, but he can freely choose to do it. So he willingly gives up his rights. And you might be thinking at this point, oh, I get it. Okay, so Paul's giving up his rights so he can feel good about himself. Well, yes, that is true, but it's not actually his primary reason for doing it. Feeling good is just a sort of happy byproduct of his primary aim. His primary aim is to persuade as many people as possible about Jesus. You can see it there in verse 19. Though I am free and belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. That's his aim, to win as many as possible. And to that end, he gives up his rights, his freedoms. He removes as many obstacles as possible to hearing and believing the gospel. Verse 20, to the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I'm not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. In other words, if he's preaching to Jews, he'll conform to Jewish culture. He'll wear Jewish clothes, he'll eat Jewish food, he'll pray Jewish prayers and sing Jewish songs and he'll keep the law of Moses. He'll do whatever it takes to remove any obstacles to Jews hearing the gospel. Even though he's not actually obligated to keep any of the laws of Moses. He's free in Christ. Christ has paid for all that. It's the same with the Gentiles. If he's hanging out with them then he'll happily chow down on the sweet and sour pork. He'll scoff down the oysters. He'll cut his hair to suit Gentile tastes. He'll hang out in Gentile homes. He'll do all sorts of things that no self-respecting Jew would ever do. Because he's not under the law of Moses. Sure, he won't do anything that goes against Christ's law, he says. He's not going to do anything immoral. But anything that's just cultural rather than sinful, well, he'll do it. He doesn't actually have to. He has the right not to eat pork. He has the right to cut his hair however he likes. He has the right to go where he wants and hang out with who he wants. But he says, instead of insisting on his rights, verse 22, I've become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. And this is what Paul wants the Corinthians to see. They're obsessed with their rights. Their rights to go to idol temples and eat the meat there. Their rights not to be hindered by anyone else's opinion or concerns or conscience. But Paul wants to expand their gospel imagination beyond the realm of rights. It's not that rights don't exist. They do. But they're just a really narrow way of viewing the world. The Corinthians see Paul not insisting on his rights. And the only reason they can possibly imagine is that he's just a doormat. He's a loser who gets trampled over by others. I mean, who wouldn't insist on their rights? But Paul has a much bigger, broader view of life than that. He's got a view of life that's actually been shaped by Jesus. 
who, to quote Paul in Philippians chapter 2, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. See, Paul's saying, yes, you do have rights. You absolutely do. But imagine what you could do if, like Jesus, you were willing to give up those rights for the sake of the gospel, for the glory of God and the salvation of others. Where could you go? What opportunities might that open up? When I finished uni, I went and worked for a couple of years as a research assistant uh, with a team up at the Lions Eye Institute at Sir Charles Gardner Hospital. Uh, And I got to work with a team of, I guess, probably about a dozen people, and they were great people. I really enjoyed working with them. Periodically, uh, they'd invite me out for Friday drinks or Saturday night bowling or nightclubbing or whatever it was. And I was like, oh, thanks, yeah, no, probably not. (laughs) Because I had lots of friends. I mean, if you're a Christian, you've got far more friends in all likelihood than your non-Christian friends do. I just didn't feel any particular need for more friends. Didn't feel any particular need to get to know my colleagues better. And besides, in my first year of work, I just found it exhausting. I just wanted to go home and sleep all the time. Was I within my rights to do that? Yeah, absolutely. I don't have to go anywhere. I don't have to hang out with anyone. But... I missed out on an awful lot of opportunities to share the gospel. It just kind of didn't dawn on me as a kind of thoughtless early 20s guy that these people wanted to be friends with me. (laughs) That I could have had incredible opportunities to share about Jesus with them. But I was just thinking about what pleased me, what my rights were. Most of you have far more time and money than you need. And it belongs to you. You can do with it whatever you want. You can spend your time scrolling through your Facebook feed between lectures. You can spend your money on eating out or the latest phone, new iPhone coming out tomorrow, very exciting. You can do whatever you want with it. That's perfectly legitimate. It's your time, it's your money. You can spend it however you like. But Paul's saying, just imagine for a moment, What if you gave up your rights, your legitimate claim to your time and money, and imagine something bigger? Imagine the possibilities. Imagine what you could do if you were willing to give up your rights for the sake of others. What possibilities for Jesus and the gospel might open up? Could you give up your right to constantly check Facebook, to know what all of your 500 distant friends are doing and hang out with someone who's actually in your class, get to know them better, get to share the gospel with them? What if you gave up your right to spend all your money on yourself and actually thought about what you could do for the sake of Jesus and the gospel with that money? What if you could actually give some of it to an organisation for... Uh, to buy food and Bibles for children around the world who don't have either? What if you used your money to buy your friends a round of beer at the tap or threw a party for them? 
so that you could hang out with them and chat and talk about Jesus. Now, you don't actually have to do any of that. You are totally within your rights to say, I don't want to use my time and money that way. That's totally legitimate. You are totally free in Christ Jesus. But can you see how the world opens up if you're willing to give up your rights for the sake of Jesus? So when we insist on our rights, our world shrinks and it shrinks around us. We become the centre of it. But if we're willing to give up our rights for Jesus and the gospel, then our world suddenly expands with opportunities to bless and to be blessed. Like Paul says in verse 23, I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessings. If you're willing to give up your rights for the sake of Jesus and the gospel, suddenly the opportunities for sharing the gospel expand and multiply too. But it will take self-discipline if that's what you want to do. Because it took self-discipline for Jesus to give up his rights, his equality with God, his right to a fair trial, his right to life. So it's going to take self-discipline for us. But then if you stop and think about it, as Paul points out, Lots of people give up all sorts of rights for really trivial, stupid reasons. Think about athletes, for example. Verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Athletes give up an extraordinary number of rights. We're into the AFL final season now and you watch those guys out there and that, it's impressive what they give up. You know, they give up their right, to, um, their right to eat whatever they want. They give up their right to go out and have a beer after the game. They give up their right to rest and leisure, their right to privacy. They make themselves a slave to their coach and all in the hope of what? A finals medal? In a few years, most of Australia won't even remember whether they won or not. The Olympic Games, back then, you gave up your rights to win a crown of laurels. Just some foliage that fades and dies. A moment of glory that in a few years, hardly anyone will ever even remember. But, says Paul, the crown that we get lasts forever. I don't think he's talking about salvation here. We don't get salvation through our self-discipline or our efforts to share the gospel. But God does use our self-discipline and our efforts to share the gospel to bring about the eternal salvation of others. That's the crown that will last forever. It's the salvation of others that we'll get to rejoice in with them for eternity. Can you picture it? That on the last day, you turn up there at the gates of heaven in the new creation. And this guy runs out to you and he says, hey, you're here. I don't know if you remember me, but you shared the gospel with me. I'm here because of you. And then someone else runs out and they say, hey, you're, you're the one who actually sat down and read Luke's gospel with me. 
I was really unsure about the whole Christian thing at that point. And just doing that, encountering Jesus like that in the gospel, it, it just set me up for life. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you so much for what you've done. Now, that's a reward worth having, isn't it? That's something that goes on for eternity. It doesn't fade. People won't forget it. That's something worth giving up your rights for. That's why Paul says in verse 26, Therefore I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. He wants people to be saved. That's, that's the reward he's looking forward to. That is the prize. That's what he doesn't want to miss out on through doing a sloppy job or just insisting on his own rights to the detriment of the gospel. So Paul is crystal clear. Yeah, we do have rights. Rights are good. They reflect and affirm our humanity. That we're made in the image of God as rulers over creation with value and dignity. So what could possibly be more important than our rights? Well, says Paul, the glory of God and the salvation of others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for Jesus who gave up his rights for us that we might know you and have eternal life. Father, please help us to be like Jesus. For your glory. Amen. We've got a few minutes left. Does anyone want to ask any questions about that? Yeah, um, yes, that, that is true, um, that we do have a, an obligation in that sense. Um, but if you... But there's genuine freedom in Christ as well, that we're saved without regard to our works. So... Um, It's, it's kind of like where uh, if we understand the gospel, we should be so overjoyed by it and so grateful that we want to live in response to it. So do we have obligations? Yes, in a sense. Um, that's right. But actually, more the way the gospel works is we've got joy in what's been done. And so we live out our obligations in a way that doesn't feel like an obligation in a sense. It feels like a, a joyful gratitude for what Jesus has done. Yeah. Is that helpful? Yeah.